Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Boy, it's been too long since we've had David Priest back on the podcast, the uh, Chief Operating Officer of Lawfare. Uh, so it is good to have you back, David. It's. Uh, I would say it's good to be back, but you know, we we have a trend, not all of them, but a lot of these episodes, I'm back on when there's just some really crappy news. And I just feel bad about coming on and... The news is always crappy. You, you, you have a good point. You know, we don't we don't often do episodes here on unicorns prancing through meadows and rainbows of Skittles and rivers of chocolate. And we need to do that once. Just have one episode, maybe April Fool's Day, where it's about how wonderful the world is and how everyone's getting along. Uh, I'm, I'm working on that. So, hey, listen, since we last spoke, though, I, I yeah. actually don't know where the last uh, you you're a you're a new dad. You have a baby. Speaking of, you know, That's, rainbow Skittles. That is that is correct. And uh, almost all of lifestyle that, change. Almost all of that experience is an absolute joy. And uh, yes, she's happy and healthy. And that makes that makes everything easier. Of course, sleep patterns change. So I'm adjusting to the new normal in which, um, you know, during COVID, I got to the point where I couldn't remember days of the week, months of the year that I was in. Now I don't remember hours of the day either. Everything just blends together. Well, that's probably a benefit. I mean, this is the way that the mind adapts, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the way the mind copes. It, 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 it warps time, or maybe it's, maybe it's a protective thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's evolutionary. But in any case, so, you know, having a, having a baby, it does change your perspective on, on, on so many things, including, you know, a lot of the things that I would like not to worry about in the future, I keep thinking, yeah, but you know, my grandkids, they're going to have to put up with this. They're going to have to deal with all of that. Right. But that, that, cause I noticed how I already turned it to a negative thing. I said, Hey, just congratulations. Got one it, sentence. It, it, it is, it is, it is a, it is a positive thing. So right before we were we, we came on, we were having a, a discussion about an issue that's really near and dear to my heart. And we are going to get to Afghanistan and intelligence failures and vaccines and all of that stuff. But um, I have to admit that I'm obsessed with mosquitoes. We, we In Wisconsin, this is mosquito season. And I have to say, it's, it is, it's really tough. I envy you folks out in on the East Coast uh, who don't have as many, but you're telling me <laughs> that in fact you have had mosquitoes. I, I, I always think of Virginia and Maryland, at least compared to Wisconsin, where the mosquito is our state bird, basically. You know, I don't know. I would, I would love to, to talk to a mosquito expert to find out if they are literally the same species or if it's a different, I don't know, brood or family of mosquitoes. Because yeah, the climate is different in the upper Midwest than it is from the swamps of DC. But you have to remember that Washington DC was partially swampland, and it's it's not unusual that there would be a lot of mosquitoes in this area. Plus, you know, there's plenty more people here for them to feed on. So yeah, it was just a few years ago that, you know, discovered that we had mosquitoes all over the place. So we actually tried one of those mosquito squad type places. And they, they were you, here this morning. I had mosquito squad guy, like, like 10 minutes before we started this yeah. podcast, blasting stuff right outside my window. So I'm, I'm totally into the mosquito well, I'm squad. I'm curious thing. to see you know? if you notice a difference because we certainly did. The The mosquitoes, as I recall, for the rest of, of that treatment period, we didn't have any mosquitoes, but we still found it difficult to be outside in the middle of the summer because the gnat population in yeah. this area yeah. has just exploded in the last several years. Maybe it's climate change related. Maybe it's something to do with the the development and the the urban sprawl across the area, but we don't know what it is. 
we can't be five minutes outside running and playing without gnats in eyes, ears, nose, throat. It's it's not a mosquito squad type thing. They no, can't I, seem I, to help I, with those. I can take the gnats except when they get into your your, your ears and your and your eyes, yeah, and then it's like it, then it's like we have to go inside, and that's it's like what what what's the point? Well, this is why this is why we invented screen porches and things like. But here's things the thing, like Charlie. That. I don't get yeah. this. Um, our dog can be outside yeah. and running around, not troubled at all, and I don't see gnats swarming the dog. There's something oh. about the human head that these gnats seem to love, at least this, in this area. Maybe okay, the species that, in Wisconsin is different. This may be your head because I, I, I have dogs <laughs> and, and, and they are, and they are swarmed. That's one of the reasons why we had the mosquito squad go out with uh, the two German shepherds and the old guy. Mm-hmm. And I just was looking at one of the, the dogs and they had, he had bugs all over him. And I was like, Oh, come on, this is, this is not fair. And, and they're bothered by it. I'm so yeah. people want to talk about more subs. No, actually you probably do want to talk about mosquitoes. I just, I am kind of waiting for that. This is, this is part of the problem though of living in Wisconsin is we wait all year long for it to be summer, to be warm weather. And, and, and there's a, there's a thing here that the, the first few days of, of really nice weather, everyone is outside and no one in Wisconsin ever wastes a nice day. But then you get to a point later in the summer where it's hot and it's humid and the mosquitoes are and the gnats are out there and you start fantasizing about the first frost and you go, what the hell's wrong with us? I mean, it's just like we have spent our whole <laughs> lives waiting for it not to be frost and waiting for that six weeks of wonderful weather here. And then it's like, you know, when the first frost comes, I'm going to be able to sit outside again and be able to go out in the woods and the dogs. I don't have to worry about all of the, the stuff. Well, at least look, at least in Wisconsin, we don't have to worry about hurricanes, alligators. I don't know, whatever, you know. Mostly because I will say I remember growing up and I don't remember which year it was, but I was in Illinois and we had a hurricane that had come right up the Gulf, probably through Louisiana, Arkansas area, and it steamed full speed. I don't think it was still hurricane strength when it hit Illinois, but it was, I I remember the winds and the rain and I thought, what, what is it? We get tornadoes, we get, we get heat, we get mosquitoes, we get lots of snow. Now we're getting hurricanes too. It didn't seem fair. Okay. Well, at least no earthquakes. We don't, we don't have earthquakes here. Okay. So this is, this is, this is the thing. Okay. So before we get into this, I have to uh, beat up on somebody, uh, myself. Oh, so I, I, I woke up this morning looking at Twitter and something I had tweeted late last night, and I was ratioed. I mean, horribly ratioed. Is this the congressman and, uh, in it Afghanistan? It is. It, it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, I, I had seen the story very, very fleetingly of two guys that I who have been great on uh, the necessity of getting the the Afghan translators out. Seth Moulton and uh, Peter Meyer. Seth Moulton's a Democrat. Uh, Peter Meyer's a Republican. And so I, I kind of like these guys and have liked what they have said. They've been very, very eloquent. And I saw that they had actually gone there and uh, I said, uh, Dan, this is what leadership looks like. And I saw the reaction overnight and I'm looking at it and reading the story this morning, two members of Congress made an, this is the Washington Post, two members of Congress made an unauthorized whirlwind trip to Kabul early Tuesday, leaving less than 24 hours later on a flight used for evacuating U.S. citizens, allies, and vulnerable Afghans. The visits by Moulton and Meyer, which was not approved as part of the normal process for congressional fact-finding trips, served as a distraction for military and civilian staffers attempting to carry out frenzied rescue efforts, according to two people familiar with the trip who spoke on the condition of anonymity, blah, 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 blah. 
It is not clear how the lawmakers first entered Afghanistan uh, and goes on. Okay, so I looked at that and I thought, so I had tweeted out, this is what leadership looks like. And this morning I'm reading the people who are just beating the shit out of me and thinking, you know what? They're right. This was, so I, this morning, damn, what a terrible take. This was, I mean, this is part of the problem. You have lots of takes. You, you, you hope that your batting average is, is above, you know, three, 300, but <laughs> that, that was, it was one of those, like I, you know, it was a, it was a knee jerk reaction based on the fact that I, these are two guys that I've listened to. I've liked. So I, Hey, an attaboy. And it was terrible. Well, was, I got to tell was, you, Charlie. No, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I just, I it was, this is mea culpa, my awful take. Well, there's, there's two ways I can give you comfort on this one. First of all, it is by far not your worst take. You have had many worst <laughs> takes, many of them involving uh, Green Bay Packers and other things. Number two, there is a case to be made. I'm a big fan of looking at arguments on both sides, not of issues that are you know, morally right or wrong, and all the right is on one side and all the wrong is on the other side. But obviously, there were reasons they did this that do not appear at least solely to be ego, because they didn't go there, grandstand, make a big deal out of it. They didn't publicize it while they were there. So let's look at their reasons why they say they went. Um, they went because they're not getting information they think they need from the administration. Uh, they wanted to go there in a way that would not put a burden on the people on the ground. So they arranged their own airfare, paid for it to, I believe, the Emirates, and then took a military transport over. They ensured that they would not be taking a seat from anyone coming back because only crew seats uh, would hmm. they would take. Um, and there is a legitimate role for congressional oversight on one of the biggest national security issues uh, facing uh, this year, possibly this entire administration. So you put all that together, that does not say that it was a wise choice. I think they should not have gone given the circumstances, especially given that there is a process for congressional delegations and they did not follow it. Bad on them. But I can also understand why they felt they could go, especially given their past experience, that they might be able to get some insights that they just weren't getting from the usual channels in the administration. Well, and this is part of the problem is that is the gap between what the administration says and then some of the reports. Now, I'm not saying that all of the comments by the administration are untrue, but there does seem to be a gap. So one of the in my newsletter today, I talk about the the, the numerator denominator problem that Biden mm -hmm. has. And very, very simply, I mean, there's 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 two sets of numbers out there. Um, the, the numerator would be the the number of people that we're getting out. The denominator is the number of people we need to get out. So right. the, the White House is obviously focusing on the first number and they're pointing out in the last uh, 24 hours, they evacuated 19,000 people, which is a big number. Mm -hmm. um, that brings the total of evacuations to 82,300 in just 11 days since the end of July. It's about 88,000. These are, these are huge numbers. So, you know, the White House says this is the most successful airlift in history if you just focus on the numerator. But the question is, okay, but do we know how many Americans are still there? Do we know how many Afghan translators are still there? How many people are we going to be le you know, left behind? So th this is one of the things that, that's sort of head-scratching, that you could simultaneously have one of the most successful Dunkirk-like uh, airlifts 
And it's still uh, being immensely disappointing to many of the veterans groups. And gauge your take on this because there's a yeah. lot of back and forth. The White House saying we're not getting enough credit for this. You people in the media are being too negative about it. Veterans groups are saying, no, 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 wait. We, we have tens of thousands of people who are going to be left behind to be butchered. Um, you know, to, no, you know, no more happy talk. So, yeah, but, frankly, but, the the administration did one thing well in its early communications on this, and maybe only one thing, which was, and I believe this came out of the Pentagon, not out of the White House, which is setting the expectation for daily uh, person counts coming out of Afghanistan at five to nine thousand a day. Yeah. So when we hear that there's ten thousand a day, or seventeen thousand a day, or twenty one thousand a day, we think. Wow, this yeah. this is quite a logistical effort. And let's not fool ourselves. This this is quite a logistical effort. They're moving enough flights and enough people out that that matches an actual functioning airport in a civilized uh, country with infrastructure. And and they're not really facing that at Hamid Karzai International Airport. So it is a logistical effort. It is not the greatest airlift in history. The Berlin airlift was just orders of magnitude more impressive and sustained for over a longer period of time. Of course, it did not involve bringing out people who were going to be presumably uh, tortured and killed. So there is a difference. But let's not let's not miss the fact that it is an impressive effort at this point. Yeah, the numbers issue. The, we got to dig into those numbers more, and we just don't have the granularity we need on a couple of key questions. U.S. citizens, of course, are getting the most attention because. We are, you know, talking about the government of the United States of America taking care of U.S. citizens. The breakdown of how many of those 82,000 some are U.S. citizens or families of U.S. citizens versus how many are Afghans, that becomes a really interesting question because let's say that all U.S. citizens who want to get out are evacuated. That's great. Some of those 82,000 that have been evacuated are clearly Afghans. Mm-hmm. Well, according to some resettlement and refugee experts, th- they estimate that there's between 300 and 500,000 Afghans who are in imminent danger of being targeted by the Taliban for associating with the United States and the coalition during the past several years. Well, if you're talking about finding a way to help at least a significant portion of that body, people who we owe something to, you're talking about a healthy chunk of the Afghan population. Yeah. Uh, Afghanistan, I think between 35 and 40 million. You're talking more than 1% of the population, um, possibly as much as 2% of the population needing to get out of there urgently, even at the rates we're seeing. And even if the president extends the deadline, which we can talk about why there's a deadline and the wisdom of it, but even if that happens, I don't see a way the airlift is going to be getting out 300,000, 400,000 people in the next couple of weeks. But I could be wrong. I've not worked a major logistical effort like this. Well, it may not be the next couple of weeks since uh, the president seems to be sticking with the August 31st deadline, which is less than one week from now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure um, how that actually works. If we're supposed to be gone um, on on the 31st, whether that means you have to wind down the the flights before that. So give me your take on this. There was a lot of pressure on the president from our allies and from veterans groups and from even Democrats in Congress saying, don't stick to that deadline. Um, What you need to do is make it clear that we are going to stay there until we get all of our people out. 
Um, and yet, and then of course we heard from the Taliban yesterday. No, that uh, this is firm. It's a red line, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, so you know, Biden seems to be sticking with the August thirty first. Um, although he's given himself a little wiggle room. Yes. I mean, he, yes. He's, he's he's left that asterisk on it, but yeah, yeah. I suspect we won't find out for sure, and maybe maybe if ever, but we won't find out for sure exactly why Biden did what he did until after he leaves office and writes a memoir or the, the stories come out. Because here's the thing. Last year, February, if I recall, that's when Donald Trump, in his wisdom, decided to move forward on dealing with the Taliban and essentially saying, we'll be gone by May of next year. Biden inherits that situation, right? And so fundamentally, he's faced with a choice. And even though we can criticize and should criticize the administration's handling of the execution of the withdrawal and the communication about that execution, you have to acknowledge that Biden was in a crappy situation. His fundamental choices were continue with the withdrawal um, with the date that had been put out there to the Taliban of May. He did not do that. Um, he extended the deadline. Should he have put another date on it? I personally don't like that. I hate putting firm deadlines on things to somebody who then has a motivation to to move forward knowing that things will be different on that date, but that's neither here nor there. He had the option of whether to continue to withdraw by a set date, perhaps negotiated with the Taliban or perhaps just communicated to the Taliban. Or he had the choice of forget that we can maintain a presence, maybe not 2,500, maybe as the Afghan study group recommended earlier this year, maybe it's more like 4,500 troops just to advise and assist, but we can actually stay there longer and use that time to get all of these hundreds of thousands of people out safely instead of rushing it. But the problem is by then the Taliban has already made advances and because of the deal with the Trump administration last year, now they're pissed off because they were promised by the U.S. government that the U.S. would be gone and they might start taking much more aggressive action with the additional resources they've gained. And suddenly you might not be able to do it with 4,500 U.S. troops on the ground. You might have to do something that Joe Biden has been opposed to since he was vice president in the Obama administration, which is putting a whole bunch of U.S. troops in there in active combat roles and re repeating some of the past situations that he's disagreed with. Now, we can argue about all of the nuances of that, but there was that fundamental choice that he probably faced. Do I stick to a deadline and try to get people out as quickly as possible? Or do I run the high risk of having to essentially put a whole bunch of combat troops right back into the thick of it? That choice sucks. It doesn't mean he made the best choice, and it certainly doesn't mean he executed his choice well. But there was a bad situation going in that I, I don't. I feel for any commander in chief who has to make that chief that that well, choice at that point. I want I want to come back to that, including um, the 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 intelligence failures, because I know you're working on a piece about the intelligence failures. But to the point that you just made. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, revisionist history going on, particularly among uh, the Trumpist right, about um, about uh, Donald Trump's role in all of this. And uh, Liz Cheney um, had some pretty, as as usual, was was pretty forceful in in reminding people about the deal that Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo cut with the Taliban and and what they handed off to the next president. So let me, let me just play a little bit of that and we'll talk about it on the other side. Uh, this is Liz Cheney. 
Congressman, I'm sure you're aware that President Trump in a number of interviews has said that this would not have happened if he were in charge. What do you think? Well, look, he, he set this in motion. Um, he began the process of negotiating with the Taliban. He said many times the Taliban was going to kill terrorists on our behalf. Uh, he praised the Taliban. Uh, he he uh, apparently wanted to invite them to Camp David. Uh, so he fundamentally misunderstood the situation on the ground and, and did real damage to our partners, the Afghan government, by excluding them from those negotiations. So the, the idea that you could sit at a table, negotiate with the Taliban, uh, count on them to defend our, our security is, is wrong. And we heard a lot of things from, from President Trump and Secretary Pompeo that were wrong. Uh, but again, President Biden is the commander-in-chief right now, and he's the one who made the decision to withdraw now and to do it the way he's done it, uh, and he bears uh, certainly the brunt of the responsibility for what's unfolding on the ground. So again, she lays out, um, you know, the, the situation that you just that you just described, yeah. um, and 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 this whole notion. I mean, have you, have you noticed people like Rich Lowry from National Review are saying, you know, if Donald Trump was still president, he'd be handling this so much more effectively. He'd be rattling his sabers and he'd be scaring the Taliban. Well, you know, a lot of you know, sort of what ifs, you know, if 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 only's there. Um, but it is interesting how they're not only engaging in sort of this this fantasy world, but also um, retconning what, in fact, they were OK with when Donald Trump was president. Yeah, there, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, that alternative history where Donald Trump is making some of these decisions, that it, it would not have been appreciably better. So it's disingenuous for anyone to claim that this is, you know, somehow solely President Biden's fault. But responsible leaders don't use that as an excuse. And I've heard Biden put out there, you know, this decision is mine, the buck stops here, that kind of mentality. And that's right. It's it's not pushing the blame to the others. We're not, we're not hearing this president say, um, I don't take any responsibility at all. That's, that's not coming out of his mouth. Um, it's a, it's a crappy situation and he had to make a choice and he made a choice and he's going to have to defend that choice. Well, let's talk about, uh, I wanted to talk to you specifically about the, the possibility of, of intelligence failures and how intelligence failures, mm -hmm. you know, might've contributed to all of this. Uh, as I know that there's a piece that you're working on for lawfare, which will probably be up by the time that people listen to this uh, podcast. And I want to talk about that when we come right back. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we are back with David Priest from Lawfare. So let's talk about um, the... The, the, what appears to be, at least on the surface, a massive intelligence failure. Everybody from the president on down saying we had no idea that uh, that the uh, the Afghan government would collapse this quickly, that we would not have a decent interval. So, you know, let, let's 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 talk about this, you know, because as as you point out that there's the there's an old adage in foreign policy circles that you, you hear from people like in the White House or the State Department or the Pentagon, that there are no policy failures only intelligence failures, and <laughs> you you think yeah. that's kind of a garbage take? Yeah, that's that's a landfill sized garbage take. That's the <laughs> kind of thing that we back when when I was working in the intelligence community, we would roll our eyes and say that. Which is, anytime a foreign policy decision went bad, sure enough, 
Um, you could set your clock by the fact that somebody within the hour would be in the press calling it an intelligence failure. And let's be fair, there there can be an intelligence failures, and often there have been when intelligence both is a crucial factor in a decision that goes bad, and that intelligence is inaccurate or not objective or untimely or just poorly disseminated and communicated. Th- those intelligence failures do happen. But I found it amazing that, you know, at the moment that Kabul was collapsing and refugees and evacuees were racing to the airport, suddenly you had everyone from members of Congress to Richard Engel of NBC News putting out their claims that this was a huge intelligence failure. And the first question in my mind was, how the hell would you know? Um, You don't know what was in the president's daily brief today or last week or last month. You don't know the evolution of other intelligence briefings and other finished intelligence products that have been provided to the president, the national security advisor, the secretaries of state and defense. Um, it's, it's hard to judge whether something is an intel failure or not. So, yeah, I found myself scratching my head saying, we need to understand what an intel failure is and what it isn't. So I've been working on something that I hope to get up on, on Lawfare soon, which basically describes it. And fundamentally, it's this. You can have an intelligence failure of collection when intelligence officers fail to get obtainable information that would inform a particular decision. Um, This could be bad information from a source, um, or this could be simply a failure to collect it. But even if good information is collected, you can have intelligence failures from analysis. You can have analysts that put the pieces together wrong and they present clearly inaccurate judgments, or they could be biased in their judgments and they could be inaccurate because of that. They could have the right judgment, but they could not present it in a timely fashion. It does no good to give a correct judgment of a situation to a policymaker after the policy has been made and executed. Um, Or they can simply fail to communicate the message effectively. It could be on time, it could be accurate, but it is an intelligence failure if the intelligence briefer undermines the judgment or dismisses it with a roll of their eyes, even as they're delivering it. So there are many ways intelligence failures can come about. But the problem is we don't know enough information to know if this was purely an intelligence failure. We don't know what intelligence community assessments to the administration said back to the start of this year about the Afghan government, about the Taliban, about the credibility of any Taliban assurances to the U.S. about Kabul in particular. We don't know how they were communicated to policymakers. We don't know if they were highlighted. We need to know all of that to know whether we can truly call this an intelligence failure. Let's be honest, Charlie. You can have policy failures even with good intelligence. You can have the best intelligence of the world and still make a bad choice. I don't know if that's the case here, but we need to be open both to the possibility that time will show us intelligence failures happened, which I think is just as likely as not, and open to the possibility that the intelligence was pretty good, even if it didn't give a point prediction of when the Taliban would seize the capital. But the intelligence was pretty good, and it just didn't matter to Biden, who had higher priorities. Yeah, so that's the distinction between, you know, an intelligence failure and a policy failure. You know, I, and, and, you know, I mean, how, how do the policies break bad? Because as, as you point out, in, in some of these policy failures, the errors 
they, they can't be blamed on errors on the intelligence side, right? Um, you know, the, right. because bad bad policy has a completely no different path. Uh, yeah, leaving absolutely. aside any of the this data that's that's being presented, and you make choices. So, was Donald Trump's policy dictated by intelligence or by just his decision that he wanted to get out? Same thing with Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been saying, "I want to get out for." decades now uh or more 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 than it more than a decade so again what's yeah you you've watched this happen how do policies get it so how yeah do they, i mean how do we, policy makers get it so wrong even we, even without the intelligence failure sure we can break it down in terms of the the policy process you know you can look at the policy formulation you can look at the decision you can look at the implementation and then you can look at the communication of it but just looking at the formulation and, and decision process itself, the first part of that, you can have the best intelligence in the world, but the ultimate decision maker, in this case, the president, has a variety of other inputs in the policy process. Decisions are not made by intelligence assessments. Decisions are made by, in the president's case, the democratically elected commander in chief, who also has to consider things like foreign allies concerns or reputational costs in the long term or resource constraints or even domestic political calculations. So there can be a legitimate way that a policy is made that doesn't look like it makes sense based on the intelligence, but those things are more important. It could be a case of just bad judgment. It could be a case of here's the intelligence and it seems to suggest this is going to happen if you do X but the policymaker is so stubborn about doing X that they say, I don't care what the intelligence says. That's not an intelligence failure. That's a policy failure. Yeah. There's also, of course, politicization, where the classic textbook case is the intelligence officer delivers a clear judgment about something bad that's going to happen. And the policymaker says, well, I don't think you're telling the truth. And I think you're wrong on this because they don't want to believe it because it's inconvenient for the policy they've already decided on. We don't know if that's the case here. In my experience, that is extremely rare. It's usually not that blatant. But if it's that case where the policymaker is explicitly saying, I disagree with the intelligence because I don't want to believe it, that's not an intelligence failure. That is also a policy failure. Well, one of the most interesting hinge cases that intelligence officers debate when they think about these things is how far does the burden of the intelligence officer go for convincing the policymaker? Yeah that an intelligence judgment is correct. And Henry Kissinger reportedly argued, after acknowledging that he had received a, a clear warning from the intelligence community, he said, essentially, he said, yeah, you warned me, but you didn't convince me. And I think that's a step too far. I think policymakers um, have the tough job of making those choices. But if it's dependent upon some you know, GS-11 intelligence officer to try to convince Dr. Henry Kissinger, that they're right when the logic and argumentation and the evidence of an intelligence judgment should be doing that to an intelligent person by itself. Um, that's a shifting of the blame that becomes yeah. unethical when taken to the extreme. So we have the intelligence, the possible intelligence failure. We really don't know at this point. We have the policy choice, which, mm -hmm. again, people can debate and are going to continue to debate for as long as we are, are, are around. And then, of course, we have this question of implementation. And, and yeah. one of the frustrating things about debating all of this 
is that sometimes the criticism of the way that it has been implemented and the communication strategy then becomes conflated with, well, then you must support, you, you, you must oppose the policy decision. Or if you think that it was implemented badly, that means that you wanted to do X, Y, and Z. And usually the phrase forever war gets, gets dropped in there. Yeah. But I mean, it's your, your take on all of this, whether or not we agree with the decision to pull out, it's, it is hard to argue that this implementation, um, mm-hmm. is, uh, optimal. Yeah, legitimate questions here, Charlie, and questions that I hope Congress, in its constitutional role, will will start asking in depth, because the dynamic here should not have been a surprise. And the reporting that we have seen suggests that it was not a surprise to some in the government. So the question becomes, to whom did they express that? Did that message get through to decision makers? And did they care? But the dynamics that happened in August 2021 could have been predicted by a reasonable person looking at all factors here back in the spring. So the process of moving up flights, the process of getting more and more people out of the airport while we still had an embassy to process people on the way to the airport, why was that process not begun months ago? That is a particularly relevant question that has to do with implementation. It's less about intelligence in that case. It's just more about the implementation of a decided upon policy. But that's the kind of thing that I expect congressional investigators will be looking at because it's reasonable that the administration could have foreseen something like this situation happening, even if not at the speed that it happened. So why were they not taking some of these steps earlier if they knew there was going to be a withdrawal by September 11th or even earlier? So one of the things I've been thinking about is the way in which this debate will um, illustrate the power of dueling narratives. And the way I've been thinking about it, and please bear with me on all of this, is I think, which movie will be made about all of this? Will it be a Fargo-like movie? Um, I'm sorry. Um, what, what was the name of the movie about the with, with rescue of the hostages from um, Iran? Oh, that's that uh, Argo. The Tony Argo. I, I, I know, obviously not Fargo. Argo. Not Fargo. It, yeah, no, not Fargo. That's a completely different. That's that's where the, the the guy is fed into the wood chipper. Totally, totally different story. So, is it going to be a story of the incredible heroism of this Dunkirk like um, you know Exodus? Will will it be the story of the C seventeen that had eight hundred people on it, where the crew said, "Let's go. We're going to do this." Um, or is it going to be the story of uh, the betrayal and of, of defeat? Uh, you know, I mean, are we going to focus on which stories are we going to tell? Because they're both true, you know, but but what we always, you know, that's that's the that is the burden of history is which narrative becomes the dominant narrative. Will it be the narrative of this incredible airlift that was successful and probably has stories that you and I don't know that we don't know about? Uh, special ops uh, operations to to extract people, uh, the extraordinary heroism of uh, of folks who were managing to get it out, the efforts of the incredibly generous uh, humanitarian efforts of, of people who are arranging the charter flights. Is that going to be the dominant narrative? Or will it be the narrative of the atrocities of the people left behind? Because you can imagine two completely different movies made about this. And the question is, which, which one settles uh, in the minds of uh, policymakers and, and the American voters. Yeah. Well, we have a couple of parallels, um, and neither of them is a perfect parallel, even though one in particular is being tossed around uh, quite liberally right now. 
the parallels are 1975 Saigon and then the situation in Iran that Jimmy Carter faced. So first, the Saigon one. Um, We know what the searing image in the popular imagination is, and that's the helicopter the most famous image, which people associate with leaving the U.S. embassy, it's actually not. It's from a, a hotel uh, or a building where there were some government facilities. But the image is there of the last helicopter out of Saigon and the hellscape that awaited those who could not get out. So that's the dominant narrative there, even though there are many cases of heroism and courage in those final days. In the Iran case, it's a little more murky, even though I think that parallel applies more. Not necessarily the the fall of the Shah, the revolution, even the seizing of the hostages, but to me, it's the Desert One tragedy, the rescue attempt that went wrong, because that's the thing that really turned the tide uh, against Jimmy Carter. The country had rallied around the president to some extent with the hostage taking, but at that point, it went down, and that really sealed in the narrative of the incompetent Jimmy Carter who was holed up in the White House and was unable to do anything. And all of this might of the United States can't even do a special operations mission right without causing the deaths of U.S. servicemen. That's the narrative that for many people had dominated that, frankly, until Tony Mendez of the CIA was allowed to start telling his story about the uh, the mission that became the movie Argo with Ben mm-hmm. Affleck. Now, I don't think that has necessarily overtaken in national security circles the narrative about the uh, Iranian disaster. We know that Bob Gates repeatedly as Secretary of Defense to President Obama cited the potential for a situation like Desert One, a failed rescue attempt um, when they were debating the Abbottabad raid on bin Laden. So it definitely was a dominant narrative for future important national security decisions. Um, But it is fascinating to see if a movie like Argo uh, generally a good movie, despite some real liberties with the truth being taken at the end, whether a movie like that about some heroism among the Afghan evacuees and the people on the ground working covertly to to get them out, will that be more dominant than a story about yeah. just one of those flights and all of the, the the personnel on that flight from the evacuees to the pilots and what it took to get them out? There are, because there are so many amazing stories out there, and I'm not trying to reduce this or trivialize this. It's just the, the, the question is, you know, what, how, how in, in the public imagination, you know, what is this going to be? Because, I mean, sometimes these things do get uh, simplified, and there are so many um, amazing stories, and it is positive. So I've been very, very critical, along with, the, with, with, with others, um, of the way the Biden administration has handled this. But clearly one of the things that they are pointing to is the fact that we have pulled out, you know, all of these people, we've engaged in this this very fluid, chaotic situation, but there have been no Americans killed, no, none. And that they think that that, I mean, obviously that's something they are focused on. Obviously that's one of the reasons why um, they are continuing to cooperate with the Taliban, perhaps why they are reluctant to cross the red line of the Taliban to have this massive operation with no American casualties. And I have to say, that that's not a trivial point, um, and that 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 does seem to be a a valid concern. Um, the 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 fear, of course, would be that you know you you mentioned Desert One from the Biden administration point of view, and they may be thinking that things look. I mean, things have, you know have been bad. I mean, there's been you know a lot of things that have gone wrong, um, but 
Um, if, if there was a large scale loss of life, uh, if there was shooting, if, if a plane went down or something like that, that would be far more catastrophic even than the catastrophes we've seen so far. And I can't say they're wrong about that. Right. And Joe Biden, I, I think I've seen reporting uh, that looks reliable that that is a factor, if not the dominant factor for Joe Biden. Uh, he wants to minimize and if possible, uh, eliminate any casualties. He wants, he wants no deaths, no injuries of Americans as this process wraps up. And that is not ethically wrong. It, it yeah. is not wrong as commander in chief. You want the commander in chief like George H.W. Bush, who sending troops in to liberate Kuwait uh, when Saddam Hussein had invaded, even as he made the decision, knowing it was the best decision based on all of the factors involved, sat there in misery over the thought of U.S. men and women being killed and injured in the effort. You, you want the commander in chief to have that on their mind and on their conscience. Um, that's why you elect people of character to that office. If that is the only consideration, that can warp a policy because the U.S. military, pe people who serve, know that they are doing so with the possibility of injury or death in service of the national security and at the command of the commander in chief that goes along with the job. And it is not, it is not supposed to be a career with, with no risk of that it's inherent in the enterprise. So a commander in chief who does elevate that above all else, who says the national interest shall be defined by not having a, a member of the U S military killed or injured that actually eclipses yeah. greater goals for the 330 plus million, 330 million plus people in the United States. We don't know the details yet, but that's going to be one of the really interesting things to figure out is, did Biden have that as the primary factor or as one of many factors? And how did he balance those when making these decisions? So in the, in the time we have left, let me just switch gears uh, for, for a moment and, and, and get your sense about uh, the, the, the politics um, and, and the reality of the, of the fight against COVID, uh, particularly now that the, the FDA has approved the Pfizer vaccine, looks like they're on track to approve all of the, the others. There's been a couple of polls out, David, that you, you perhaps have seen that, that raise the possibility that there is kind of a, that the ground is shifting here. There's a Quinnipiac poll out of Florida which would indicate that large majorities are rejecting just about everything that Ron DeSantis is saying about masking and about social distancing. These are big numbers of, of people who um, apparently understand that uh, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that wearing a mask is a matter of public health, that it is not a, an infringement of individual freedom. And I do get the sense that there is more and more sort of, you know, anger, the, the rage of the res responsible, and that even as Republican governors are doubling down on on playing the, you know, anti-masking, anti, you know, uh, not, not uh, anti-vaccine mandate uh, card, that the public is going in the opposite direction. Um, what, what, what do you see happening here? You know, more and more companies are coming online uh, saying mm -hmm. that their employees have to be vaccinated. I don't know that you change the hearts and minds of the crazies uh, out there, but we might change the behavior of enough people to change the trajectory of this. Is that yeah, too optimistic? The, the real the real inflection point seems to be, well, first of all, the, the first inflection point was the 
emergency use authorization of the vaccines in the first place. Because you did see, and we lose sight of this, but you did see people almost fighting to get the vaccine. When can I get it? How can I get it as soon as possible? That was me. Yeah, uh, yeah I, all of us, yeah. I, I think most most reasonable people wanted to get that vaccine as, as soon as humanly possible. And sure, there were people who had the liberty of debating, well, you know, do I feel more comfortable with Pfizer or Moderna or J? Well, guess what? Uh, most people said, I'll take whatever I can get first. Right. So let's not lose sight of that. That that was the majority of the U.S. public. The second inflection point seems to be, and we'll see if the data bears this out, the full approval, which now gives companies, the U.S. military, uh, many school districts, it gives them the the backing to say, okay, um, if you don't get a vaccine, you're going to have either daily testing and all of this other stuff, or you're not going to have a job. And it's sad that that's the push it takes rather than the continuing images of people fighting for life in hospitals, of doctors and nurses breaking down because they can't cope, people being turned away from emergency rooms for other illnesses because the unvaccinated are filling up all the hospital beds. It's sad that that isn't the inflection point, but the inflection point is, well, now it's going to affect your paycheck. But I think that does matter. People need incentives in some cases, and that's a a, a disincentive and, and may work. What is interesting to me politically, and I, and I want to watch how this plays out, is you may be right. You know, polling may suggest that people like DeSantis, um, people listen to him, and then they say, well, you know what? We, we kind of do want our kids to live, um, and we don't want the kids to bring the virus back to the immunocompromised. So yeah, I actually think him banning masks or, or preventing school districts from requiring masks is wrong. So yeah, we'll, we'll put the masks on the kids. They can handle it. Um, they're, they're stronger than we are in most ways. But I don't think it affects their vote in the next election. And that's a sad truth. And I, I really hope I'm wrong on this. But I think they can believe that, that, you know what, I, I disagree with him on some of the mask and vaccine stuff. Um, but when it comes to pulling that lever in the box or pushing that button in the box to vote or checking it, I think they're still going to go for that R because of the tribalism involved, and it's not I, I going th- to affect I, the political calculation. I think this is one of the lessons we've learned over the last few years, that, uh, that these specific things don't necessarily move that, that there's just a tremendous gravitational force that's yeah. going to pull people back. Uh, and, I, and I think you're right about all of this. Um, but, you know, once again, um, I think that uh, there's, I guess this is what's encouraging to me is that you can become very depressed watching all the, you know, the stupid and the crazy and the people who show up at, at school board meetings saying that uh, the CDC has secret plans to uh, put us all in concentration camps or stuff like that, or that that if you take the vaccine, that, that spoons will stick to you. And you can begin to think that we're living in idiocracy. But then you see some of these numbers that suggests that, okay, um, that's not real life. Those That does not speak for all Americans, that there is still a residual amount of common sense out there, which is, I have to say, somewhat refreshing. Yeah, I, I, we can find things. This is a good way to, to close from our yeah, opening. Was... We can find the rays of light, even, even when there are a lot of dark clouds out there. And it's so easy to focus on, you know, the stories of the the person yelling at the school board meeting that this is like a Nazi concentration camp because I'm being, you know, asked to wear a mask and that gets the outrage factor going. Sure. But the vast majority of people aren't doing that. Most Americans 
are are vaccinated. Most Americans see the need to take simple measures to protect themselves and their fellow citizens as caring human beings. That's where most people are. And I just don't want to lose sight of that because of the outrage of the, the small minority. I agree. David, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Good to be back. Thanks. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. and We will do this all over again.